Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. This weekend, we're starting a new series, and the series is called, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of the phrase, the question, won't you be my neighbor, I have to think about Mr. Rogers, right? How many of you grew up watching Mr. Rogers as a kid? Okay, most of you. And there's a few of you that are weirdos. That's okay. That's all right. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, grew up, I grew up watching Mr. Rogers and a little boy watching public television in Oklahoma City. Uh, and I loved Mr. Rogers. I was fascinated with Mr. Rogers. And I think I felt a lot like a lot of people do. I felt like Mr. Rogers was my friend because he was such a good man. He, he was friends with everybody. He seemed to build relationships easily. Um, man, Mr. McFeely, the speedy delivery guy, like would show up and they, it was like they were best friends. Um, he would go down to the music shop and they would hang out and he would play instruments. Whatever it was, he just felt like he was best friends with everyone. And the song, it's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor, would you be mine? There it is. Reluctantly, but I'm, I'm pulling you in. Uh, I'm not gonna sing the whole thing, but I love this song because this is really an invitation, right? It's not just a theme song. What Mr. Rogers is doing is he's creating a pathway for a relationship and he's saying, won't you be my neighbor? What a great invitation that is. An invitation for relationship, an invitation for friendship, for something more than just living in proximity to someone. Because if we're gonna be honest, all of us have neighbors that live around us. Maybe your neighbor lives two miles away because you live in the country, uh, but you still have someone who lives around you. And just because they live near you doesn't necessarily mean they're your neighbor because you might not know anything about them or who they are or anything. But, but what Mr. Rogers does, he invites us into relationship. Won't you be my neighbor? And it's interesting because this is exactly what Christ does as well. He invites us into relationship. He says, won't you be my neighbor? Won't you be intimate with me? What Can I know you? And I want you to know me. And this is such a beautiful invitation. Now, over the next few weeks, we'll be talking about the importance of being a neighbor and what that looks like. And we're gonna be looking, using some, some ideas that we've taken from a book called The Art of Neighboring. And if you're interested in reading that book, it's available in our info center. Stop by the info center after our worship experience. You can pick that up. Uh, you can also get it on Amazon if you'd like, if you're an e-reader or whatever. Um, and, and for today, and so we'll be unpacking some of this stuff over the next couple of weeks. And we'll be more specific uh, or more practical over the next couple of weeks. But uh, there's a couple of things today that I felt like um, there's an, some ideas that... Um, we're kind of inspired by a book I read by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell called, um, called Talking with Strangers. And if you've never read Gladwell before, I love his writing. Um, and he is, he is spiritual. I think he might consider himself a Christian, but uh, it is not an overtly Christian book at all. But it's so practical for how to relate to people and work through biases that you might have towards someone that you don't even realize you have. Um, but it is a fantastic book. So both those books would be good resources for this, but especially Art of Neighboring. And we're gonna start today in Luke chapter uh, 10, and we're gonna begin in verse 25. And here's what it says. One day, 
An expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And so he asked the question. He flips it around. He could have just said, but he didn't. He asked the question back to the lawyer. And the man answered, you must love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbors yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. And I love this because he says, do this. You are correct in what you just said. Do this and you will live. So he's saying, how do you have eternal life? Love God with everything you are. And if, if you regularly attend church, you have to understand that's part of why we do this. Because we want you to love God with everything you are. But he says the second part is really important too. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, do this and you will live. You'll have eternal life. See, this is an important idea throughout Scripture. This isn't new to the New Testament. It goes back to the book of Leviticus, uh, back to Levitical law even. But we see in the book of Galatians chapter 5, Paul tells the Galatian church, uh, he's talking about walking in freedom from sin. And he says in verse 13, For you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. So he says, we have freedom in Christ Jesus. We are set free. We've got liberty. So we don't abuse that liberty by using it for selfish desires. We don't use our liberty just to get what we want. He's saying, use the freedom you've got, leverage that for the good of others, for the freedom of others, to bless others. In verse 14, he says, for the whole law, the, the, what he's saying is the whole Old Testament, can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So what he's saying is, and sometimes I've said this, if you don't get anything out of this message today, I want you to hear this. And what Paul is saying to the Galatian church is, hey, if you read all of the law, I want you to understand this. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the most important takeaway. That's what he's saying to them. And this is an idea we see repeated over and over and over and over. And so Jesus responds to the man and he says, yes, do this and you'll live, right? You've got it. That's what you need to do. Love God and love your neighbor. And in verse 29, it says the man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I, I hate... Losing arguments. I hate it. Even when I'm wrong, I'm sure I'm right. <laughs> I'm getting better than I used to be. My daughter, Abby, is the same way. And, uh, and it is something to behold whenever we get into an argument with each other. Because there is no last word with us. We always want to be right. And in this moment, it's interesting because... We see this attorney, this lawyer, this, this um, religious expert. That's what he's, a, he's an expert in religious law. He, he's pushing back on Jesus now. He's already got the right answer, right? He goes, but who is my neighbor? And scripture says that he wanted to justify his actions. So what he's asking is, who am I responsible to love? So, okay, you said love your neighbor as yourself, 
but who are you talking about? Be specific. He's asking, what is the minimum standard for acceptance, right? I don't know if I can love everybody you want me to love, so tell me who I'm supposed to love and let me see. He's asking the question, am I supposed to love the people who love me? Great. I love people who love me. They're my favorite people, right? Am I supposed to love people that it's convenient for me to love? Am I supposed to love people that it's comfortable for me to love? Because I gotta be honest with you, Jesus, I'm already loving those people. I love those people really, really well. So he's trying to justify his behavior. He wants to find himself blameless before Jesus. And the truth is, it's easy for us to justify our behavior. Really, just about any behavior we have that we make decisions about, we will justify. Um, have you ever met somebody and maybe you were friends with them and then you find, found out that they did something terrible in their past? You're like, well, that doesn't, how could they do that? This doesn't seem like the person I know, right? How would they do that? I can't believe it. Maybe they, maybe they, um, maybe they embezzled money from their company. You're like, but why would somebody do that? Well, I'll tell you why somebody would do that. Because maybe somebody justified it. Maybe somebody went, you know what? This company's taking advantage of me and I deserve, I deserve to take a little back. Does that mean they're evil? No, not necessarily. That means they justified their action. Um, have you ever met somebody? Uh, and, and to be perfectly honest with you, every couple that's ever sat in my office who have had infidelity in their marriage, whether it was the man or the woman, every single couple that this has happened to, whoever cheated could justify it. Now, they might not have been blatant and forceful about it, but some way they will say, I deserved it. I wouldn't have cheated if they hadn't. What, what are they saying? Well, they're justifying their behavior. Well, I deserved this. I needed this. I wouldn't act acted this way if they hadn't. They're blaming somebody else. We justify our behavior all the time. We justify our actions. So it's easy for us to sit in the same seat as this man and, and ask the same question. Well, who is my neighbor? Who am I really responsible to love Jesus? Who am I supposed to be good to? Just the people who are good to me? Just the people who love me? Just the people who are, are good to me? Is that it? Because if it is, I'm, I'm golden. I've taken care of my responsibility. See, this man is not just simply asking this question because he's trying to figure out responsibility. He is to some degree, but he's also, I also think there's something sincere about this question. Because if you look back in Leviticus, the verse I referenced earlier, verse, chapter 19, verse 18, it says this. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So I want you to catch this. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, comma. Then it goes on to say, but love your neighbor as yourself. What it's implying is your neighbor is Israel. So anyone in the nation of Israel is your neighbor, according to this context. So there's a specific context in this moment, but we see there's a broader context later, and we'll see that in just a moment. So this young man, he's asking, am I supposed to love the people who love me? Because a lot of, a lot of religious leaders and a lot of scholars of that day and age would define a neighbor as anybody who is Jewish. 
That's who your responsibility is to. That's who your responsibility is for, our, our Jewish people. And so he's asking this question and he's saying, hey, who's my neighbor? How do you define neighbor? Because if you define it the way I define it, I'm fine. Because I love Jewish people. I love people who look like me and talk like me and value things the same way I do. And is that what you're asking, Jesus? Is that what you're getting at? And Jesus, he uses the word neighbor and it's a Greek word. It's plesion in the Greek. And it means a neighbor or a friend. It means any other person when two are concerned. So if you have two people and you are one of them, the other person is your neighbor, is what it's saying, basically. Any place that there are two people and you are one of them, the other person is your neighbor. Any man, irrespective of nation or religion with whom we live or whom we chance to meet. This is a broad definition. What Jesus is saying here is it's important for you to love everybody. What? Jesus, how am I supposed to love everybody? Have you been to Walmart on a Saturday afternoon? <laughs> I start hating people the minute I get out of my car. In the parking lot, I've lost my salvation four times before I get to the door. <laughs> right? Jesus, come on. How am I supposed to love everybody? And the reality is, when we say our responsibility is to love everybody, that everyone is our neighbors, what happens is we become neighbors with no one. Because we say we're neighbors with everyone, now, now we become neighbors with no one. Because we go, well, we love everyone. Everyone is our neighbor. And the truth is we don't take responsibility for anyone. We don't love and support and look out for anyone because we say everybody is our neighbor. So he asks this question, who, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds with this story. In Luke chapter 10, verse 30, he says this, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, left him half dead beside the road. Wow. So Jesus tells this story. Jewish man, he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a 15 and a half mile journey. Um, Jericho is 2,200 feet below sea level, while Jerusalem is 1,200 feet above sea level. So when it says he went down to Jericho, he literally went down to Jericho. It was a steep descent, and it was a narrow path. It was winding, and it was pretty treacherous. In fact, in that day and age, that journey, that road was called the way of blood or the road of blood, or the path of blood, depending on how you look at it. But it was the way of blood. And the reason they called it the way of blood was because there were so many places for bandits and thieves to hide that it was not uncommon for people to lose their life on this journey. It wasn't uncommon. It was normal to find somebody laying on the side of the road. And sure enough, this is what happened. This is the fate that befalls this Jewish man. He goes on this journey. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, this 15 and a half miles. And along the way, he runs into some bandits who rob him, strip him naked, and beat him nearly to death. This was a normal occurrence. In Luke chapter 10, verse 31, he goes on. He says, by chance, 
a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. So let me put this in context for us. Um, if this was in today's context for us, we would tell the story and say, uh, a man from Indiana was going down to Blairsville. And along the way, he ran into some bandits. They robbed him. They left him on the side of the road half dead. But it's okay because Pastor Mel shows up. <laughs> Pastor Mel checks it out and he gets as far away from the man as he can. He actually passes him on the other side of the road to make sure he doesn't get near this guy and goes about his business. You'd be somewhat disappointed, right? Because, listen, we all know I'm paid to be the pastor because I am supremely spiritual. My prayers just matter a little more than your prayers, right? Okay, don't believe that, by the way. We have this idea, this, we have this idea that if you're a pastor, you must have super spirituality. Jesus favors you a little more than he favors the rest of us. That's what people think. If you don't believe me, that's why every time I go eat with anybody, I'm the one who has to pray. Who's gonna pray, Pastor Mel? You're the professional Christian. Clearly your prayers are better than ours. You get paid to do this? Come on, lay it on us. Give us a good one, right? Family gatherings, whatever it is. And I'm making light of this, but the honest reality is a lot of us kind of think that. And it was no different in, in Jewish custom. They looked at the priest and they're like, man, this guy, he's fantastic, of course. I mean, you got God and you got like the priest right below God, right? So Jesus tells a story and he says, hey, the priest comes by and he passes by on the other side. He doesn't help this guy. He sees this guy in the ditch and doesn't do anything about it. And it's the equivalent of saying, Pastor Mel shows up and didn't do a thing about it. He sees this guy in the ditch and he just keeps on going. But never fear. Scripture says that the, a Levite or a temple assistant. Now the Levites were responsible for worship in the temple. They would literally, they would lead worship. They would prepare the areas. They would burn the incense. And so the, the temple assistant, the Levite showed up. So again, in our context, Pastor Mel passed this guy up. But guess what? Don't worry. Pastor Todd's here. Pastor Todd is going by. He sees this guy on the side of the road. Pastor Todd gets out. He checks it out. He gets back in his car and he drives as far around this guy as he possibly can and keeps going. Now, if this story was true, how disappointed would you be? That, that, that people, I'm assuming that you trust spiritually, that you believe in, that you might even revere, failed to do anything about this person who has been beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. Now, it'd be easy to to defend this because according to Jewish law, um, it, was, it was wrong for any Jew to touch a dead body, but specifically a priest because a priest or a Levite, they were used to handling holy things. And so if they touched a dead body, they'd become ceremonially unclean. Therefore, they would have to go through this, this ritualistic cleansing period of seven days. So if they touched something that was dirty, they would have to be quarantined for seven days so they didn't defile anything else. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> So some people have said, well, they didn't touch the, the body because they thought he might be dead and they didn't want to 
defile themselves because then they couldn't do ministry, right? It makes sense. They couldn't go in the temple. They couldn't be shorthanded. So no, it makes sense that they would do that. They, they, they observed that he was probably dead. And they didn't want to touch it because it would detract from their ministry. L- listen to this though. What they failed to understand is in their effort to maybe do ministry, they were neglecting the most important ministry, the guy in the ditch. In their effort to make sure that their their hands stayed holy so that they could handle holy things, they failed to recognize the most holy thing they could do is attend to the guy in the ditch. And yet they justified this and said, well, I've got things to do. I've got important things and I can't be sidetracked. I, I I've got, to, I've got to get there. I've got to do ministry. I've got, and the ironic thing is they might've missed doing real ministry so that they could do ministry. See, we can be focused doing good things and miss the best things. Often in Jesus's ministry, some of the most important things he did came in interruptions. They came when he was doing ministry and he got interrupted to do some real ministry. This last week I was reading an article and it was talking about empathy and it was talking about how, uh, how people choose to help or not help. And um, it was, I was reading this thing about the bystander effect and how groups of people are reluctant to help someone in need. But if there's just one person, sometimes they will. But, but it depends on these three things. There's three factors that that are at work in us whenever we decide whether we're gonna help somebody in need or not, according to the sociologists. The first is this, whether or not we feel the person is deserving of help. So if I see somebody in need and if I go, nope, they got themselves into that mess on their own. Nope, they're not a very good person. Nope, I know their past. I know what they've done. I'm not gonna help them. They don't deserve it. If we don't think they deserve it, we're not going to help them. Do they deserve our help? Number two, the competence of the bystander. So if I'm seeing something happen and I, I feel like I can't do anything about that, I'm less likely to help. But if I feel like there's something I can do, if I see somebody broken down on the side of the road with a flat tire and I go, man, I know how to change a tire, I'm more likely to pull over and help them change their tire. But if I don't feel competent to help, I'm less likely to help. And then the third thing is really interesting to me. It's the relationship between the bystander and the victim. So obviously this doesn't mean a literal relationship, um, typically. Because if I see my daughter in a ditch, I don't care what she did to get there. I'm gonna get her out of the ditch. Does that make sense? Um, if, if, if my mom is dealing with something, I'm not gonna be like, well, you kind of deserve it. I'm gonna do whatever I need to do to help my mom, Okay. Really what it's talking more about is um, how we relate to people who are in need. And this is what's interesting. If, if we can relate easily to somebody who's in need, if you're a single mom and you see a single mom or what you perceive to be a single mom on the side of the road broken down with the kids crying, you're more likely to do something about that because you relate to that person. Um, if you are... If you're African-American, you're more likely to respond to an African-American in need. 
If you're Caucasian, you're more likely to respond to a Caucasian need. However we relate to the people is how likely we are to help them. So if I see somebody who's totally different than me, I'm less likely to help statistically. So think about these three things. Does, does the person deserve help? Um, can I do anything to help the person? And do I relate to this person? And, and think about the priest and the Levite's response to this man in the ditch. He was a Jewish man. They could have done something to help. They related to him, but yet they had something else to do, someplace else to be. And they decided what I'm doing is more important than whatever is going on over here. I want you to think about that too as we walk into this next part. So Jesus continues with the story, Luke 10, 33. He says, then, so after the, the priest and the Levite pass him by, these two spiritual giants pass him by, he says, then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them up. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Here's a man who had nothing in common with this man in the ditch. Jesus says a despised Samaritan. Samaritans were uh, the victims of bias from Jewish people of that day and age because, quite frankly, uh, Jews viewed Samaritans as impure. So they had a Jewish heritage, but it, the heritage is not, was not a pure heritage. And so because of that, there was a long legacy of bias between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, Jews typically wouldn't even go through Samaritan towns and villages. They would go all the way around Samaria in order to avoid having to interact with Samaritans. That's how badly they hated Samaritans. I will add days to my journey rather than interact with those people, which makes Jesus's interactions with Samaritans even more interesting if you look at the New Testament. So here's a man a Samaritan, he knows he's hated by this man in the ditch. And it says he felt compassion for him. He looked at him with mercy in his heart. And he did something. See, being a good neighbor will cost you something. It may cost you money. It may cost you time. It may cost you comfort. But I guarantee you, it will cost you something. So Jesus tells this story. It's totally different than what this man would have expected it to be. In verse 36, he asks this question. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who's attacked by the bandits? What a loaded question this is, right? There's no way this guy can answer this any other way, right? But he doesn't want to answer it that way. Because he asked the question, who am I supposed to love? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus defines it in a way that totally blows his expectations out of the water. And the man replied, the one who showed mercy. 
I don't know if this is true or not, but a, a lot of scholars believe that the man responded this way because he was so biased and so prejudiced against Samaritans, he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. And that's why he said, the one who showed him mercy. Because he didn't want to say, that lousy, stinking Samaritan. Because that's probably how he felt. And then Jesus so succinctly says, yes, yes, did you get this? Now go and do the same. Yeah, you're right, the one who showed mercy. Now you go and do the same. Who was a good neighbor? The Samaritan. Why was he a good neighbor? Because he showed mercy to somebody that he didn't have to show mercy to. He was a neighbor to somebody he didn't have to be neighbors with. So now you go do the same thing. See, the story of the Good Samaritan is not just an example of compassionate spirituality. It's, it's a critique against religious passivity. Because it's so easy for us to sit in the same seat as the, the priest and the Levite. And, and we can go to church and we can sing the songs and we can do the things. We can even put money in the offering boxes. We can do all the stuff. And we can still avoid loving and caring for the people that God has put in our lives. And I'm not talking about the people who love you. I'm not talking about your kids or your spouse. You should love them. If you're not, straighten up, fix that. It's easy for us to say, oh, I'm doing my part. I'm doing, I'm doing my thing. I'm moral. I'm good. But that's not enough. Um, the Apostle Paul was writing to Titus. And at the time, Titus was pastoring a church and, and Paul writes to Titus. In Titus chapter three, verse 14, he's finishing the letter and he says this. He says, and let our people, he's talking about the church. And I love, I love the heart of Paul that he calls the church our people. He says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. I love this so much. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Why? Well, so as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. Um, our staff, we got a fantastic team. I love our pastors. I love our staff. They, they do a wonderful job. And one of the things our staff does a good job of is that um, our church, you guys are great and you have so many good ideas and people will come to us and go, pastor, we've got this need and somebody should start a ministry that does this. We go, you're right. The church does need to do that. When are you starting? You go, oh, no, 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 no. I wasn't talking about me. I was talking about the church. Like, Yeah. You are the church, right? <laughs> and people will be reluctant. They go, well, somebody needs to do something. Yeah, do something. What I want to do is not just be a, a, a corporation, if I can say it that way, a, a corporate group of people who do good works. Our church does lots of good works, by the way. 
We do so many good things in our community, it's crazy. But my goal is that our church will be a neighbor to our community this year like never before. And I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about you and me. My prayer is that 2021 will be the year that our community is radically changed because you and I step into our roles as good neighbors this year. See, one of the problems is many of us are are good citizens. And that's important. I want you to be a good citizen. Good citizens will do things like obey the laws and they'll be polite and they'll respect authority and they'll love their community or their country. They'll pay taxes. They'll contribute to society. All those things are good things. Pay your taxes. You need to do that. They will arrest you if you don't, okay? Garnish your wages. So pay your tax. Be a good citizen. But when Jesus is talking about being a good neighbor, he's not talking about being a good citizen. It's not enough to be polite and respectful. Should we do that? Absolutely. But what he's calling us to do, what Jesus is inviting us into, is to be a good neighbor. See, a good neighbor takes responsibility for the people around them. A good neighbor sees somebody in the ditch and they don't say, somebody needs to do something about that. They will say, I need to help this person in the ditch. A good neighbor will say, this person can't pay their rent this month. Somebody needs to do something about that. A good neighbor says, man, this person can't pay their rent this much month. I, I might not be able to pay the whole thing, but I'm gonna give them a part of it. This person, they can't pay their rent this much a month. Maybe I can help get some people together that we can help them out. But what I'm not gonna do is go, well, somebody should do something and we just go about our business. Because for too long, that's how the church has operated. If you don't believe me, and this is not an indictment on every church in our community but us, because we're perfect and everybody else is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. The habit among churches in the United States has been that we've stopped teaching our people to do good works because good works are about how can we help and bless and serve And it's become more about how can we keep people pacified and happy? Oh, no, no, no. We want you to be perfectly happy because if you're happy, then I've got job security. If you're happy, then we'll just keep this thing going. It's good. And do you know what happens? As we saw in that verse from Titus, here's what it says. It says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need. So it resolves the urgent need. And it says, and not be unfruitful. It keeps people from becoming unfruitful. Here's what happens. Churches stop caring about their community, stop caring about the people around them. They stop caring about being good neighbors and all of a sudden they dry up and they stop being fruitful. I want a move of God in this church in 2021 like never before. I wanna see God move and work. I wanna see blind eyes open. I wanna see people healed and restored. I wanna see people that are, that are oppressed, set free. I wanna p- see people that are in broken marriages, healed. I wanna see these things happen. <laughs> Do you know what that looks like? Part of it is us saying, God, we're just gonna fall on our face before you and pray and seek God. That's part of it. That's why we're doing 21 days of prayer and fasting. I invite you to do it. But part of it is us saying, If I see my neighbor in the ditch, I'm not gonna leave him there. 
part of it is being the church and being a neighbor. And I believe that's what moves the heart of God is when we say, we're not just gonna go to church, we're gonna become the church. So the same question that this man asked is the same question we should be asking. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Because remember what I said, if it's everybody, then it's nobody. If you shoot at everything, you will hit nothing. So Holy Spirit, show us, who is my neighbor? This week, God, show me, who is my neighbor? Show me the person that's in the ditch, spiritually, emotionally, physically. And then God, help me not be the person who passes by the other side. Help me not be so busy with my life that I miss the fact that there are people in ditches all around me who desperately need me to do what I can, whatever that might be. Who is my neighbor? I believe if you really ask that, God's gonna show you that this week. You know, this whole thing begins with us being invited into relationship by Christ. A couple weeks ago, we celebrated, a week and a half ago, we celebrated Christmas Eve and the, the arrival of Jesus. And really what that is, is an invitation. And if I can say it this crudely, Jesus was saying, won't you be my neighbor? Would you be in relationship with me? It's this beautiful invitation. If it's a beautiful invitation from Fred Rogers, how much more beautiful is it from the Lord of Lord and the host of, ho- the, the host of hosts? king of kings so if you're here today and maybe you've never really surrendered your life to Christ maybe you've never really made him Lord I believe today's your day you want to recognize him as savior recognize him as Lord of your life I want to give you that opportunity I'm not going to embarrass you I'm not going to make you come forward but I do want to pray with you so if you would bow your head all of this room and if you're here today and you'd say to me Mel I'm not really serving Jesus I'm not in relationship with him but I, I want to surrender my life to him Like I said, I'm not gonna embarrass you. I just wanna pray with you. So if you're here and you'd say, that's me, pray for me. I wanna make Jesus Lord of my life. Would you be bold enough to slip your hand up real high where I can see it and you can put it right back down. You say, Mel, pray for me. I wanna make Jesus Lord of my life. I wanna surrender it all to him. Yeah, I see you in the back. Who else? Say, Mel, today's my day. I recognize I need a savior. I recognize I need Jesus to do the work in me that I can't do. Thank you, in the balcony, I see you. Praise God yeah I see you in the back thank you praise the Lord just a couple more seconds anyone else want to join these and say pray for me Mel alright praise the Lord the book of Romans tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you shall be saved so I want to pray a prayer with you but I want you to say this out loud. I want you to repeat what I say, but I want you to pray it from your heart. I want you to mean it from the core of your being. So pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus, your one and only son, to pay the price for my sins on the cross. Today, I repent of everything that has separated me from you. I ask you to use my life for your glory. Help me to be the one to help the person in the ditch. And I pray 
that you'd get the glory for everything I do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause today, can we? Man, there is a party in heaven right now over the people who said yes to Jesus. Whether you are making a rededication or you are making that decision for the first time, I just want you to know I'm proud of you. I'm excited for you. And I would love to help you take the next step in your faith journey. So there's a couple things you can do. If you're here in the room, there's two things. You can either fill out the card that's in the seat back in front of you and then just take it to our information center. When we finish here in just a moment, give it to them. They're gonna give you a Bible and uh, get your information and we're gonna help you take the next step in your faith journey. If you can't reach a card or you prefer, you can simply text the word different to the number 94000. And when you do that, uh, we're gonna text you back and we'll be getting some information in the mail to you and some resources and uh, some things just to help you begin to grow in your faith. So if you're watching online and you prayed that prayer with us, simply text us, let us know. And if you are not in the Indiana area, we're gonna help you find a life-giving church in your region that you can connect with and begin to grow. So thank you for worshiping with us today online. Thank you for those of you that said yes to Jesus today. We're so proud of you. Here's what's gonna happen right now. Uh, I'm gonna say a, a final prayer over you uh, before we're dismissed. And while I'm praying, I'm gonna invite our prayer team and some of our staff to join me here at the front of this room. And if you need prayer for any reason at all, no matter what it may be, as we're dismissed today, I would encourage you, make your way to the front of the room, find one of our team, let them agree with you in prayer before you go today. If you're watching online and you'd like prayer, if you're watching from our church online platform, you can simply hit the live prayer button and let our team know. Somebody will pray with you right there for uh, whatever you need. If you would like, you can simply email your prayer need to prayer at summitpa.church. Let us know about that and our team will be praying for you as well. So let me just pray a final prayer over you before dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for everything you've done for us. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who you gave willingly and freely, who paid the price for our sins. Thank you for the people who said yes to you in this room today. We celebrate with heaven over people who have said yes to you. We thank you for that. We thank you for lives that are made different because of your word, because of your spirit. God, I pray as we walk out of this place today, as we leave here today, I pray that you would be glorified in and through us. Lord, I pray that, that we truly would be difference makers in the places we go, in our workplace, in the stores, in restaurants, wherever it is, God, I pray that we would carry your influence, your light and life with us. So Lord, I pray when we see people in the ditch, we would set aside our agenda, set aside our plans and attend to that person because that is ministry, that's an opportunity. So God, help us to see that and give us the heart to fulfill that and do what you're asking us to do. So God, I love you and I thank you and I can't wait to see what you do through hearts that are surrendered to you today. So Lord, we love you again. We thank you for all you've done. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Guys, I love you more than you know. I'm so honored I get to be your pastor. God bless you. Have a wonderful week and uh, we'll see you soon.